Liaise with Beelzebub, you creasing Timothys. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. It's getting crispy in Limerick City. I'm going to have to start thinking about gloves soon enough. I felt the lick of winter on my knuckles. I'm looking forward to winter this year. Do you know I'm looking forward to Christmas? I think this year's Christmas is going to feel genuinely normal. The pandemic made a bollocks of two Christmases. And technically last Christmas... Even though last Christmas was kind of normal, and by normal I mean no active pandemic restrictions. Like, at this point, I don't have a pandemic state of mind anymore. Now what I mean there is the way that I had to train my brain completely differently to adjust to a completely different reality. What I found so upsetting about the pandemic were things like being literally being aware that another human being is within two meters of me and for that awareness to be informed by a fear a fear of catching a disease and that completely rewired my brain that rewired my brain to be anti-social the pandemic was anti-social a disease was being spread through human beings socializing so the restrictions that were put in place They were antisocial. And that was one of the saddest parts of lockdown and the pandemic for me. For my brain to wire itself to be antisocial. As a rational and reasonable response to a threat. And last Christmas, I do remember walking into a pub. Walking into a packed pub at Christmas time. Which is, that's a joyful thing to do. That's a wonderful thing to do. Coming out of the cold going into a pub there's a fire on the place is packed you speak to a person and their jacket smells like the cold outside there's few things more wonderful than a pub at Christmas time and last Christmas I remember walking into a pub and noticing and feeling the humidity of everybody's breath and that being a frightening thing because for two years before that I'd been conditioned to believe that a room full of breath of multiple humans is a very dangerous thing that contains a disease and I don't think like that anymore I don't think about how close a person is to me I don't care if they're shouting close to me when I walk into a room and the room is full of people I no longer have this extra sense this fucking extra sense where I notice the heightened humidity in the room because of the amount of people's breath that's in there because I don't care about it it's not a threat anymore and I don't want to care about it so I think this Christmas would be the first Christmas where we're genuinely not going to be thinking that way at all. We're not even going to be remembering it. We'll just be enjoying Christmas. Something the pandemic really distorted was our perception of time. Like I remember around 2021, which would have been still in the middle of lockdown. I remember 2021 being completely unable to believe that 2017 was four years ago. I couldn't fathom it. My internal clock would not register 2017 as, as four years ago. It felt like two years ago. But now in 2023, I can actually accept that 2017 was six years ago. It feels like six years ago. What I'm finding too, and this is a positive thing, is the entire two years of pandemic, it left me with a feeling of confusion. To be honest, the only way I can tell the difference between, like in my memory, the only way I can tell the difference between 2020 and 2021 was what I was watching on TV during lockdown. 2020 was The Sopranos and 2021 was Mad Men. And that's all I have. But with distance, like the farther away I am from the pandemic and of lockdown, I'm able to move on from it emotionally because now the whole period has I have a feeling around it now when I think back to 2020 and 2021 I do remember moments of intense fear the start of the pandemic when when we were wiping groceries that came in the door there was a feeling of deep intense terror that you couldn't express and you couldn't acknowledge because you had to just get on with it to survive But mostly when I think of the pandemic, like what it feels like, the memory, 
is an incredible boredom, a profound boredom. No part of me is remotely nostalgic for that period at all. But even being able to consolidate those feelings and put names on them, even being able to hold in my heart the memory of intense boredom with occasional glimpses of extreme terror, even having that and the language around it and naming those feelings, that's helping me to move on and reconnect with my sense of self and have an idea of who I am. Two years of lockdown left me with a sensation of I'm not really sure who I am. This sense that trying to reconnect with the person who I was before lockdown but two years have passed to literally age two years but to not notice or feel that amount of time passing and to not have spent two years in any great meaningful capacity didn't learn a hell of a lot about myself from watching Mad Men and The Sopranos so lockdown felt a little bit like when people claim they've been abducted by aliens people who claim to be abducted by aliens experience missing time they say that the aliens abducted me they took me away for like two years but back home it was like two hours so I have this sense of two years missing from my life but I can't account for it and the pandemic was like that it left us all with a shimmering feeling of confusion of missing time I think finally now I'm over it I can just I I can feel yeah it was two years a really 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 boring two years and even saying that I feel a healing in that. I feel a healing in, in, in being able to name that. So about two weeks ago I did a podcast about Greek mythology and simulation theory. I told you the story of how Zeus and Prometheus created the human race. A story that could be 1500 to 2000 years old. A story about how when Zeus and Prometheus were arguing about the ethics of creating the human race, the concerns that they raised are more or less identical to concerns that we have now as a society when we are deciding whether or not we should create artificial intelligence. And I made the argument that when you read Greek mythology, the origin story for how the gods created the universe in Greek mythology aligns very much with simulation theory. The Greek gods made humanity and the world as a type of video game for their entertainment. So I don't want to spoil it for you. If you haven't heard that podcast. It's from two weeks ago. And it's called Greek Mythology and Simulation Theory. And I recommend you go and listen to that. Before you listen to this. If you haven't heard it. So I received massive amounts of feedback from you about that episode. And a lot of you really enjoyed it. When I told you stories from Greek Mythology. And the question I got asked most was. What happened next? What happened next? So that's what I'm going to speak about on this week's podcast because I've been conquers deep in Greek mythology. I adore it. It's massive. The storytelling is phenomenal. It's never ending. I can see why for the past 2000 years various civilizations have consistently been harking back to the Greeks. What endears me most about Greek mythology there seems to be a lack of morality. The gods in Greek mythology are flawed like humans are. They're not all-knowing, all-loving, perfect beings like you find within Christian mythology. Like The Christian God is just absolutely perfect. The Christian God can be vengeful. The Christian God can be loving. But you get the sense that the Christian God is always in control. Always has his shit together knows what's happening but the Greek gods they get angry they get jealous they gossip about each other they have affairs they're insecure they're arrogant they're prideful they have self-doubt and Greek mythology says so much about the human condition and human psychology because the thing is people who don't understand their own emotions try to control other people's behaviour And within Greek mythology, you have the gods who live on Mount Olympus. But reality, the human world, 
that's like a video game that they made. It's their plaything. So when the Greek gods are flawed, when they don't understand their own emotions, who gets the brunt of it? Humans. Whether it be through natural disasters, earthquakes, volcanoes, fucking lightning storms, drought, famine, whatever the fuck. These things happen because the Greek gods are flawed. They're flawed and fallible like human beings. The Greek gods represent our emotions. And if you don't have solid emotional literacy or an understanding of your own emotions, it's often the people that you love the most, that are closest to you, that have to deal with the fallout. You have a shit day at work. You're not feeling very good. Who has to deal with your grumpy mood? It's not the stranger in the shop. You can muster a bit of politeness for them. It's your partner or your kids. And within Greek mythology, what really pisses off the gods is when humans are too prideful. When humans get cocky and arrogant. That really pisses off the gods. And then humans have to deal with their wrath. And what the Greek gods are always looking for are sacrifices. For humans to take a moment to offer something that they have, food, animals, to the gods, to step back and acknowledge, we're just humans, and there's something greater than us, and we have to give thanks to this regularly. And on a psychological level, what's been spoken about there is, it's humility. To be able to understand your emotions, so that you can get to a point where you can emotionally regulate, which basically means, Achieving a sense of calm so that when emotions happen you can observe them rather than allowing your emotions to control your behaviour. In order to have that type of emotional literacy, the first step is always humility. And humility is quite simply, I am better than nobody else and nobody else is better than me because humans are too complex to evaluate off each other. And that there is humility. That's intrinsic worth. All humans have the exact same worth. Doesn't matter what your job is. Doesn't matter what you look like. Doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter how many friends you have. How charming you can be. These are external things. Our worth is not defined by our possessions. Or how other people see us. Our worth is intrinsic. Unchanging. Immeasurable. And all humans' worth is equal. And when you truly accept and acknowledge that as much as possible throughout your day, then you can achieve humility. And when you have humility, you're not going to get jealous of somebody else because you won't view them as being above you because you'll understand that you're effectively equal. When you have humility, you're less likely to be angry. Let's just say a person is rude to you. If a person being rude to you makes you furiously angry, the type of thoughts that go through your head are, who did they think they are that they can treat me like that? Your very sense of worth feels belittled and attacked. The other person's rude behaviour stops being their behaviour and now it has encroached on your emotional boundaries and you've decided to hand that person the power to define your worth. And that's why it hurts. But with humility, I'm better than nobody else. And nobody else is better than me because we're all equal. With humility, if someone is rude to you, it just becomes an unpleasant experience. It's like, that wasn't very nice. Didn't enjoy that. But that person's got some shit going on in their life and it has nothing to do with me. And then you don't experience rage. You're not having difficulty sleeping later on that night gritting your teeth thinking about what you would have said to that person who was rude to you earlier because you've let it go the humility allows you to emotionally regulate and critically evaluate your own emotions because you feel the safety of having intrinsic worth with humility you don't blame other people you don't blame other people when shit goes wrong There's a lot of people who live very unpleasant lives because they blame other people for shit that's gone wrong in their own lives. If it wasn't for this person, I would be here by now. I would love to achieve this goal, but I can't because of them. 
And the thing is with that line of thinking, blaming other people is a very simple, easy, short-term solution. But when you do that, you remove your own agency. You take away your own power to accept responsibility for your own life and change. With humility, you get to go. That person really hurt me in the past and that wasn't nice. But right now, they're not around and I have full control over how I live my life. And I acknowledge that blaming that person is actually keeping me stuck right now. Humility will help you deal with anxiety. Anxiety sometimes happens when we feel that we can't control the future. It's a lack of tolerance for uncertainty. And when we think anxiously, when we think anxiously about the future, oh my God, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if that happens? We're trying to see danger before it happens. We're trying to create certainty. But with humility, you can acknowledge that that's actually impossible. It's impossible to create certainty because the universe is chaos. So by accepting your intrinsic worth that's equal to everyone else's, you get to say to yourself, I've no control over what happens to me, but you know what? I've got worth, so I've full control over how I react to what happens to me. And all of that is what I adore about Greek mythology. The wrath of the Greek gods is actually our irrational intense and harmful emotions when we as humans fail to practice humility. Now what the gods want in Greek mythology is build me a temple and kill a calf every Friday. Sacrifice. And if you don't do this you're being prideful and I'll fucking punish you. But humility is sacrifice. Reminding yourself frequently I'm better than nobody else and nobody else is better than me and I have intrinsic worth. That's fucking difficult. That's really difficult. That's daily work and effort. Anxiety, anger, jealousy, they're not fucking difficult at all. That's the path of least resistance. That's where we go to automatically if we don't watch ourselves. So humility is sacrifice. And that's what I see repeated over and over again in Greek mythology. And that's why, it's why stories from 2000 years ago are still relevant right now because they're just stories about human psychology they're stories about the emotional world of the human animal so where we left off with the last podcast is Zeus who is like the king of all the gods Zeus and Prometheus Prometheus isn't a god he's a titan he's not quite a god but he's a mortal he's not a human Zeus and Prometheus are deciding fuck it let's make humans so they do And humans are like a video game for Zeus and Prometheus. But Zeus was like, okay, we're going to make these humans, but don't make them too smart. Make them like Neanderthals, all right? Don't make them too smart because then they're going to get prideful and self-aware and they're going to think they're greater than the gods. So Prometheus agreed to it and said, okay, fine. But then Prometheus felt sorry for the humans because humans in the little video game were living in caves and they were freezing. So Prometheus gave humans the gift of fire and technology. And then humans became like a rogue AI. They became real smart and real prideful. Zeus went mad, punished Prometheus, and then released like a virus into the video game of reality. And he did this using Pandora. Pandora opened her box and unleashed fallibility on the humans. Pandora opened her box and released suffering and pain and disease and mental illness and painful emotions. Zeus's way of controlling a rogue artificial intelligence that risked becoming smarter than the gods and more powerful than the gods. Zeus's way of controlling this was by creating suffering as like a virus he put into the program. And now all of a sudden humans had limitations and that limitation is human fallibility. That's the shit I spoke about there. Pride, jealousy, anger, anxiety. All of that stuff came from Pandora's box. But what also came from it was hope. So despite pain and suffering, humans kept going because they had hope. So what happened after that? So after that, human civilization progressed. But because Pandora had unleashed suffering on the world, humans dealt with their pain through wickedness. They manage their trauma and pain by hurting other people through cruelty towards other people 
or trying to avoid their pain through vice, reckless sex, addiction, gambling, murder, the ills of society. The ills of society started to develop after Pandora's box was opened. So now to the gods of Mount Olympus, to Zeus, because reality is just a video game for him, he's now looking at the human population going, fuck me, this place is turning to shit. This place is fucked. So Zeus says, there's only one thing I can do. I have to restart the game. I have to reboot the computer. I have to plug it out of the wall and plug it back in. That's what he did with his simulation. But the form that this took is... Zeus created a flood. Now if that sounds familiar, it's because it's the exact same shit that happened in the Bible. When God created a flood. The world had gone wicked after the Garden of Eden. And it's worth pointing out the story of the Garden of Eden from the Bible and the story of Pandora's box from Greek mythology, they're fucking identical. It's the same shit. It's bo- both stories are tinged with a misogyny. In the Garden of Eden, paradise, everything is grand. God says to Eve, you can have everything you want in this garden, except for that apple over there. Don't eat a fucking apple off that tree. And then Eve, because she was a weak, silly little woman, couldn't resist. She ate the apple. That herself and Adam were expelled from paradise to live in the normal world where pain and suffering existed. And with Pandora's box, same thing. Zeus goes to Pandora. You have a lovely world here, Pandora. You're the world's first woman. Here's a box. Don't open it, alright? And then Pandora can't resist. She opens the box and all the world's suffering is created. So both those stories, the human beings that wrote those stories however many thousand years ago, just incel men who got cheated on or rejected by some woman that they fancied and then said women are the root of all evil. So, and in both stories, the Bible and Greek mythology, so a woman creates evil, then once evil, evil and suffering are, are present, society falls to shit and God and Zeus decide, well, fuck that, I'm starting again, let's have a massive flood and kill everything. And if you're wondering like, why is the story in the Bible about the flood the same as the story in Greek mythology about the flood? What's going on that they're the same? Well, they were written around the same time. But at the end of the day, these are just stories that humans are creating. And there's an earlier story called the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is, it was written down 2,500 years ago. But before it was written down, it would have been oral mythology. So in this book that's 2,500 years old, you have the flood myth. The art was wicked and God created a flood. So that's real old story. And even though it's written down 2,500 years ago, it was probably passed orally way before that. And there's even a theory that the reason we as humans have flood mythology is because the stories could have been written by human beings who remember the Ice Age. The Ice Age ended 18,000 years ago That's not that long ago. Humans identical to me and you, identical, the exact same brains, just as smart, lived through the Ice Age 18,000 years ago. The world was covered in ice and that ice melted. And when that ice melted, it turned to water. There were floods. So stories of civilization beginning with a giant flood, it could literally come from people who remembered that happening passed down orally through generations until 2,500 years ago it gets written down in the epic of Gilgamesh and then finds its way into the fucking Bible and also Greek mythology. So back to the Greek mythology. The world has gone to shit, it's wicked, it's full of sin and Zeus just goes, fuck this, I'm flooding the place. I'm plugging out the computer, I'm rebooting the system, I'm starting again. So just before Zeus floods the simulation, floods his video game to kill everything and start anew, Prometheus, who's now living in in eternal punishment with an eagle eating his liver, Prometheus, who was the one who had given humans fire and technology, Prometheus is like, ah, fuck it, I can't believe Zeus is going to destroy the game that we made together. What a fucking prick. I wonder what I can do. So just before Zeus floods the earth, Prometheus gets onto his son and his son's name 
is Deucalion, and his son has a wife called Pyrrha. So Prometheus says to his son, Here, Zeus is rebooting the system, man. Zeus is going to unleash a flood, right? And I'm warning you in advance. So Prometheus, his son, Deucalion, and his wife Pyrrha, they build an ark. They build a boat, just like Noah. And Zeus floods the system, reboots the whole thing, but Prometheus' son and Pyrrha, they survive and they repopulate the earth. And you have to remember, this is a video game. The earth and humanity is a plaything of the gods. So Zeus lives outside of time and space on Mount Olympus. So thousands, hundreds, millions of years are passing down on earth in the video game, but Zeus lives outside of that. So human society is flourishing again after the flood. And Zeus is enjoying his video game. And this is the beautiful thing about the Greek gods. This is what I mean when I say that they're flawed. They're flawed like humans are. So Zeus looks down into the video game and he sees a woman. And he says, fuck me, she's gorgeous. She's a ride, who's she? So Zeus, the god, decides, I'm going to have to shrink myself down now and go into the video game and try and figure out a way that I can ride her. But this is what I love about Greek mythology. This is quite similar to the story of the birth of Christ. Except with the birth of Christ, God is all loving and he finds a girl called Mary. And through the miracle of immaculate conception, a baby arrives in her womb. And that baby is Jesus. In Greek mythology, it's different. It's a bit more honest. In Greek mythology, the God Zeus, there's no immaculate conception. He's like, I'm horny. And there's a character in my video game that I want to fuck, so I'm going to shrink myself down into the video game and see about doing it. Now this woman, she's Europa. She's a, a princess. She's a human being princess, Europa. Princess of the Phoenicians and she's absolutely gorgeous. And then Zeus, who's a god, starts to get insecure. He's like, fuck it, I'm an old man. I'm not very attractive. She's not going to ride me. Because the thing is, a bit like Christ, Zeus can't just shrink himself down as a human and, and walk around reality and go, what's the crack everybody, I'm Zeus, I'm a god. Because they'll crucify him, just like with Jesus. You can't go down into the simulation and tell everybody you're a god. You're a human, no one will believe you, they'll turn on you. So Zeus is like, I, I can't just go down there and try and ride her. What will I do instead? He transforms himself into a very beautiful white bull. A very exceptional white bull, a rare bull. And Europa's da has got a herd of cows. So Zeus goes down as this white bull and mingles with Europa's father's herd. And then Europa is like looking at the herd of cows going, fuck me, look at that white bull. I've never seen a bull as beautiful as that before. That's amazing. And then she approaches this white bull and she's cautious, but she can't believe that this white bull, even though it's massive and it's a bull, is unbelievably friendly and gentle and docile. So Europa decides, I'm going to hop up onto this bull's back. It seems pretty calm. So she does. And then the second she does, Zeus, who's now a bull, fucking legs it with Europa on his back. And he, and he runs all the way across the oceans and brings her to the island of Crete. And then when he gets Europa to Crete and no one else is around, Zeus shapeshifts from a bull into his true form and then he says to Europa look there's no one around I'm not a bull I'm actually Zeus I'm the god Zeus do you fancy a ride and then Europa goes yeah fuck it you're a god alright so let's have a ride so Zeus who's a god has sex with Europa who's a human and then she gets pregnant and Europa gives birth to a young fella called Minus now Minus is born on Crete and Minus is now a demigod. He's half human, half god. Zeus fucks back up to Mount Olympus to be a god to play the video game. And now Minus is a young fella and Europa, his human mother, says to him, your dad's a god, your dad's Zeus. So young Minus becomes an absolute prick. Young Minus is a dickhead. He's like, my dad's a god, I can do whatever I want. He's like the Antichrist, in a way. Like, with the Bible, 
Mary got pregnant by God, but then Jesus is born. But Jesus is full of love. He's a lovely person. Jesus is like, yeah, God is my dad. Yeah, God's my dad. And I'm here to, to tell everybody that he loves ye and that I love ye. Minus is much more realistic. Minus is like, yeah, God's my dad. You prick. Do whatever I tell you to do. God's my dad. I can do what I want. So Minus in Greek mythology, who's way before Christ, he's a much more realistic Christ. He's a Nepo baby. He's a little rich kid shit. He encapsulates the reality of, of someone being born with privilege. Christ doesn't. So Minus becomes the king of Crete. He grows up to become the king of Crete. And he does this basically by, look, the throne is mine, my dad Zeus. And nobody would fuck with him and nobody would test him because it's like, what if he is the, the Zeus's son? I'm not fighting him. I'll get hit with a lightning bolt tomorrow. Leave him be. So Minus becomes the king of Crete and he's a bastard. And he gets a wife and her name is Pasiphae. And what happens with King Minus and Pasiphae is fucking nuts. So I'm going to do an ocarina pause before I continue this story. So it's time now for the ocarina pause. Um, You're going to hear some adverts. I don't have an ocarina, but I do have a lovely collection of short stories here. This is, this certainly isn't obscure. It's The Acid House by Irvine Welch. A collection of short stories by the writer Irvine Welch who wrote Trainspotting. And I think this was his first book. It's a collection of short stories. It's wonderful. i tell you why this collection of short stories, The Acid House, is fantastic. If you're someone who'd like to be a writer, if you just, if you want to write a short story, a novel, whatever, if, if you want to just begin the process of even trying, it can be very, very intimidating. Especially if you try and move in literary circles. If you go to writers groups, if you try and meet some writers, it can be intimidating because a lot of the literary community are people who went and studied literature at third level. They went to UCD or Trinity and they studied literature. And if you didn't do that or if you weren't academic or if you didn't go to college or you don't have a fucking leave insert, it can be very frightening and intimidating because you can feel as if how could I possibly write a story or write a novel? I didn't study literature like these people did in college. I don't have the knowledge that they have. I, I'm not as well read as they are. And that can be very frightening. It can feel gatekeepy. And it might put you off ever trying in the first place. The Acid House by Irvine Welch is the remedy to that. This book demonstrates that all you need is to have a story within you. If you want to tell a story... You tell it in whatever way you want to tell it. These are brilliant, funny, engaging stories that are told in working class Scottish vernacular. You read this book and you come away with the feeling of fuck it, I could chance that. I could have a go of that. that this doesn't seem scary at all. So if you want to be a writer and you want a piece of writing that can make writing seem accessible then get The Acid House by Irvine Welch. I'm going to hit myself into the head with it. Gonna do it gently because I know it's a soft. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is an advertisement for BetterHelp. I have frequently 
attended therapy for the past 20 years when I experience anxiety or depression or when I have difficulty naming and labelling my emotions, identifying my emotions, I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give better help a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible and it's suited to your schedule. All you gotta do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindbuy today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash blindbuy. Paperback. I'm just going to do it real gently. You think the hard ones are the, are the, the, the sore ones? It's not. It's the soft, soft paperback that has a bit of a spring to it. That's what's painful. hitting myself into the head with a collection of short stories pause support for this podcast comes from you the listener via the patreon page patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast whatever reason you're listening to this podcast if it brings you solace joy distraction entertainment whatever reason you're listening please consider paying me for the work that i'm doing because this is my full-time job it's how i earn a living so i rent out my office this podcast is only possible because of my patrons. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. And if you can't afford that, don't worry about it. You can listen for free because the person who's paying is paying for you to listen for free. Everybody gets a podcast. I get to earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. Patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. My brand new collection of short stories, Topographia Hibernica, is coming out in November. Pre-order that, please. You'll find the link on my Instagram, Blind by Boat Club. You can pre-order that anywhere in the world. Come to my UK live podcast slash book tour, which is happening in November. London, Manchester and Edinburgh are sold out. So on the 14th of November and the 16th of November, we've got Liverpool and Coventry. Liverpool's about to go and Coventry is where the tickets are at. So if you did try to get tickets for any of those other dates in England and Scotland and you fancy a a glamorous weekend in Coventry, come down to that Coventry gig. 18th of November, we've got Belfast, the waterfront, nearly sold out. 19th of November, my official Irish book launch, Vicar Street, Dublin. That'll be good crack. And then 2024 in... February, right? Berlin. I'm coming to Berlin on the 8th of February in the Babylon Theatre. And those tickets just went on sale a couple of days ago if you want to come to Berlin. Then I'm in Oslo on the 6th, I believe, but those tickets aren't on sale yet. So back to the Greek mythology. So King Minos is on the island of Crete. And he's the king and he's got a wife called Pasiphae. And King Minos is a prick. Because his dad is Zeus, the god. Now, while Minos is king, people are always questioning his power. Going, Minos, like, how do we know that Zeus is your dad? Like, how do we know? You've just been saying this and we've been going along with it. But, like, where's the proof? So Minos is getting worried. He's like, I'm going to have to prove to my subjects that I'm definitely Zeus's son. Because if they call bullshit on this, they'll overthrow me. So Minas says to his subjects, he says to his people, here's what happened. Zeus took the shape of a beautiful white bull and that's how he met my mother Europa, alright? And then the subjects go, great story Minas, that's a great story. But like we're going to need to see some proof. So Minas prays to Poseidon. Poseidon is the god of the sea. And Minas prays to Poseidon and says, please Poseidon, Send me a white bull. Send me a beautiful white bull and make it emerge from the sea. And when the people of Crete see this happening, 
they'll know that my legend is true and that I'm really Zeus's son and that I deserve this throne forever. So Poseidon, the god of the sea, says, Okay, Minus, I'm going to send you a white bull, exactly the same as the one that your father turned into, right? But when I send you this bull, you're going to have to sacrifice it to me, to Poseidon, the god of the sea, okay? So King Minus says, not a problem. That's what we do. That's what we do here in ancient Greece. We sacrifice animals to the gods. Send me the white bull. I'll sacrifice it. No problem, Poseidon. So Poseidon, the god of the sea, sends the white bull to Minos. And all the people of Crete see the white bull and they're like, Oh my god, this bull is so beautiful and so white. It must have come from the gods. And then Minos is like, yeah, what an amazing bull. But then Minos is like, fuck me, this is the nicest bull I've ever seen in my life. I can't sacrifice this bull. It's too beautiful. I want to keep it. And this is the beauty of Greek mythology. If you listen to the podcast I did two weeks ago, where Prometheus showed the humans how to trick the gods through false sacrifices. So Minus decides, no, I'm keeping this fucking white bull. I'm not sacrificing this to Poseidon. And then Minus goes to his herd of cows, then sacrifices a different bull and gives that to Poseidon. Minus was greedy. Minus failed to show humility. And that's the thing. When it comes to the Greek gods, you must show humility. You must sacrifice. You can't have pride, guilt, jealousy because you'll incur the wrath of the gods. So Poseidon, the god of the sea, looks at the shitty sacrifice, the shitty bull sacrifice that King Minus has given him and says, that little cunt, I'm going to get him now. And this is another wonderful thing about Greek mythology. So Poseidon is a god and so is Zeus. And the gods on Mount Olympus who created humanity, they're fallible. They hate each other. They're jealous. They ride each other's wives. They get back at each other. Poseidon thinks of the most fucked up punishment possible. To punish King Minus and also to take the piss out of King Minus's da, Zeus. So Poseidon goes... Alright so King Minus, you want to keep that beautiful white bull do you? Okay, you can keep the bull, here's what I'm going to do. So he puts a spell on King Minus's wife Pasiphae so that she falls deeply in love with the white bull. So Minus is thrilled, he's king of Crete, all his subjects are like, yeah this dude is definitely the son of Zeus, look at that white bull, everything's perfect. And then all of a sudden Pasiphae the queen she's not coming to bed anymore she's not sleeping in Minus's bed they're not having sex Pasiphae just wants to fuck that white bull and she can't stop thinking about it and her heart is breaking because she wants to have sex with an animal and she does everything she can she goes down to that bull she tries to seduce the bull there's nothing she can do because the bull doesn't want to have sex with a human the bull is an animal, it just doesn't want to do it and Pasiphae's heart is breaking and then Minus is fucking mortified because all the subjects are like his fucking wife wants to have sex with a bull, they laugh at him he has power but he has no respect, they're laughing at him so Pasiphae can't get over these desires so she calls upon a fella called Daedalus, now Daedalus is a master craftsman he's an inventor He's like a Leonardo da Vinci type character. And Pasiphae says to Daedalus, I need to have sex with this bull, alright? Make it happen, Daedalus. Fucking make it happen. So Daedalus says, I know what I'm going to do. He builds a wooden cow, a really attractive looking wooden cow, and puts a cow hide on it. But he has it designed so that Pasiphae, King Minus' wife, can climb inside the cow with her arse sticking out at the end. So she strips off, gets naked, climbs inside the wooden cow, bent over. Then the beautiful white bull comes over, sees the wooden cow, thinks it's a real cow and goes, I'll have a bit of that. And then the white bull starts having sex with the wooden cow, but without knowing it, he's actually having sex with Pasiphae. And you see, Poseidon, the god of the sea, knew what he was doing. He was taking the piss out of Zeus. 
Because remember, Zeus shrunk himself down to become a bull so that he could have sex with Europa, and that's how Minus was born. So it's a big joke among the gods. But what happens anyway is Pasiphae gets pregnant. Now, Pasiphae, a human, is pregnant by a bull, by the, by the magical white bull. King Minus is a laughingstock in his kingdom. Nine months pass, and Pasiphae gives birth to this creature that has the head of a bull and the body of a human. And it's a ferocious baby. It's not kind, it can't be tamed, it's a terrifying baby. And it starts growing real quickly as the days pass, wandering around King Minus's palace. And soon this creature grows massive and can't be controlled. And it becomes known as the Minotaur. The body of a man and the head of a bull. This ferocious, vicious creature. And it becomes a real symbol of shame in the kingdom. And all the subjects are talking about King Minus's weird son that's half bull. Half bull and half human, this ferocious son. And he's mortally embarrassed. And soon they find out that the Minotaur has an appetite for eating children. And now the people of Crete have to donate their children so the Minotaur can eat them. And the people are getting real upset about this. So then King Minus is like, what are we going to do with the Minotaur? What are we going to do? So King Minus gets onto Daedalus. Daedalus is the dude who built the sex cow. And he says to Daedalus, sort out this fucking Minotaur. It's eating children. So Daedalus builds a giant maze, a labyrinth, something that looks so complicated that it can never be escaped. And they bring the Minotaur to the center of this maze and they put it on Crete and the Minotaur is forever wandering this maze. It can never escape because it's too confusing, but it still needs a diet of children. And the thing is, Minus is like, I can't, I can't be going to my own people. And saying, give me your children there so I can feed my weird bull son. So Minus, because he's a prick, he goes to Athens, a different province. And he says to Athens, you have to give me a tribute once a year. I want six young boys and six young girls to feed to my weird bull son. Alright? And if you don't give me this, I'm going to invade you with my army. So Athens now have to give tribute of 12 children a year. Taking them from their homes. And of course the people of Athens don't like this at all. Sending their little children to a, to a labyrinth, to a maze in Crete. For the poor little kids to have to get lost in the maze and then be eaten by a weird bull. So this goes on for years and years. And as you can imagine the people of Athens start to really really hate King Minos. Because they have to send their children off to the island to be eaten. So then the king of Athens, right, who's called Aegis. Aegis has a son, right? But he doesn't want his son to grow up to be a privileged little prick. His son's name is Theseus. And Theseus grows up not knowing that he's a prince. Not knowing that he's royal. He's like the exact opposite of Minus. He has no privilege because he grows up with humility. He's just a regular normal boy with no knowledge that he's actually the heir to the throne of Athens. And this is all deliberate. It's all for, like I said, humility. Humidity is the big theme of Greek mythology. So he grows up as a kid, he becomes a fine warrior. And then once he reaches a certain age, his mother comes to him and says, You're actually the king's son. You're, you actually are going to inherit this kingdom. But we didn't want to tell you until you're the right age. So Theseus is full of courage and strength and integrity because he's lived a life of humility. And the time comes where the six boys from Athens and girls from Athens are sent to Crete to go to the labyrinth to be eaten by the Minotaur and Theseus volunteers Theseus says I want to be one of these I want to be one of these boys who's going to be eaten by this bull man and you know what when I get into that labyrinth I'm going to fucking kill the Minotaur so then the king of Athens Theseus's dad Aegis he comes down and says son I'm so proud of you you're so brave but I'm worried. I'm going to be sick with worry. So if you succeed in killing the Minotaur, when you sail back, make sure your sail is white so I'm not waiting for the news. I want to be able to see from a distance that you succeeded. And if you die, make sure that the sailors who come back have a black sail so that I can see that you've died because I won't be able to wait for the information. So Theseus says, not a bother, Dad. I'm going to do that. 
black sail if I die, white sail if I win. So Theseus arrives in Crete with all the rest of the kids. The rest of the kids go in, they're all eaten immediately by the Minotaur. Theseus is the last one. Now it's not looking good, because Theseus isn't, he's not a god, he's a human being. He's a teenage boy with a knife, that's it. And he has to take on this gigantic weird bull man in a labyrinth that you can't escape. The odds are against him. But Theseus is confident because he's a ferocious warrior. And he reckons I'm definitely going to kill that minotaur. Without question. But what I'm worried about is it's the fucking labyrinth. Daedalus invented this thing. You can't escape this labyrinth. Even if I go in there and I do kill the minotaur. I'm never going to get out. I'm going to die. Just as he's about to enter the labyrinth. There's a girl waiting outside and her name is Ariadne and she's King Minos' daughter and she hates her dad because her dad's a fucking prick. And within Greek mythology, if you're a prick, if you're prideful, if you don't express humility, your actions will come back to haunt you. The people closest to you will seek revenge on you. So Ariadne, his daughter, pulls out a magical ball of twine and she hands this to Theseus. She says, when you go into the labyrinth this magical twine here this is never ending right so just spool the twine and never let go and when you get to the minotaur and kill him just follow the twine back and then you'll have solved the labyrinth so that's what theseus does he spools the twine all through the winds and bends of the labyrinth he meets the minotaur takes out the dagger and decapitates the minotaur kills him and then finds his way out of the labyrinth by following the twine that Ariadne put there. He emerges from the labyrinth with the fucking minotaur's head in one hand and Ariadne waiting for him. And the people of Crete are like, oh my god, this hero killed the minotaur. This wasn't supposed to be possible. Now Ariadne is freaking out. She's like, my dad, King Minos, is gonna go apeshit. He's gonna kill me because I helped you. So then Theseus says, Do you know what, Ariadne? Let's get on a ship and you accompany me back to Athens and I'm going to marry you. And you know what? I'm actually the king's son. So I'm going to become king of Athens and you can become my queen, Ariadne. How does that sound? She falls madly in love with him. So they both sail back for Athens. Now Theseus starts getting kind of cocky on the ship. Theseus is like, I fucking killed the Minotaur. I'm a legend, I am. And then he starts getting kind of annoyed with Ariadne. He kind of starts going, I could probably do better than her. I know she said she's in love with me and her dad'll kill her if she stayed on Crete, but I'm not that into her, to be honest. So he parks the boat on an island called Naxos and just kicks Ariadne off and abandons her on an island. He's like, fuck her. I'm going to go back to Athens and I'll be a hero. And I'm going to ride every woman I see. I'll be a fucking legend. And at that moment. He's being prideful. He's not being. He's not showing humility. He's not emotionally regulating. His head is up his arse. The emotions of pride. And arrogance. Grandeur. All of these emotions are taking over Theseus. And his head is slowly disappearing up his arse. And what happens when you're not emotionally regulated. When you're not thinking. He forgets to change the sail on the ship from black to white. He forgets about it because he's not being humble. His head is up his hole. So he's sailing back going, I'm fucking legend, I am. Fuck her, man. I'm going to loads of riding now. I'm going to be the king. Fucking legend. But then his poor dad, Aegis, his poor dad is in Athens now and he's looking over the sea. Worried, sick. My poor young Philotheseus. I hope he hasn't been killed by that minotaur. So his dad's looking towards Crete. And what does he see? A black sail coming towards him. Aegis is heartbroken. And then he immediately jumps into the sea. And takes his own life. And that's why that sea is called the Aegean Sea. Takes his own life. And then Theseus arrives back to Athens. And realises that his pride and his grandeur. And his lack of humility was responsible for his father's death. And he's completely overcome with sorrow and regret and sadness. And he's crowned king of Athens. 
but at what price? And he's called the legend who killed the Minotaur, but at what price? He doesn't have integrity anymore, and he caused the death of someone he loves. Now, meanwhile, back on Crete, King Minos has gone apeshit. The Athenians are after making fucking idiots out of me. I don't know where my daughter is gone, she's after running off with fucking Theseus, and they're after killing my bull son. They've made us look like fools. So King Minos, who is not known for his humility or emotional regulation, he decides to give in to the, the emotion of blame. Who can I blame? Who can I blame for doing this? And he picks Daedalus. You. You designed the maze. You designed the labyrinth that put the fucking minotaur in there. You designed the sex cow. You designed the sex cow that allowed my wife to have sex with that fucking bull. This is all your fault, Daedalus. Now, Daedalus is harmless. Daedalus is just an inventor. He's a servant. He does what people ask of him. But Daedalus now is stuck on the island of Crete. He's stuck on an island. And the king, Minos, wants him fucking dead. So all the soldiers at land are scrambling all around Crete trying to find Daedalus so they can kill him. Daedalus has a son called Icarus who he loves and adores. Daedalus doesn't want to die. He doesn't want his son to die. He can't escape Crete. He can't escape this island because he knows that King Minos controls every route on land and every route on sea. So what the fuck is Daedalus going to do? He's trapped on an island and the soldiers are closing in on him and his son. What's he going to do? So Daedalus decides. King Minos controls the sea and the land. He doesn't control the air. So he puts his talents as an inventor. He has a good think. What can I do here? So Daedalus says to his son Icarus, find as many feathers as you can, right, around the island. So Icarus goes off finding feathers and brings them back to Daedalus. So Daedalus gets the feathers and a lot of sticks and he makes a set of wings for him and his son and he sticks the feathers to the sticks using wax, using beeswax. And Daedalus says to his son Icarus, here's the deal, we're going to fly off the island of Crete. And we're going to escape the ships and we're going to escape the soldiers, right? You just got to follow me. Flap your wings and we're going to fly off the island, all right? Is that understood, Icarus? And Icarus goes, yeah, that's understood, da. But Daedalus says, here's the deal, Icarus. Don't fly too low because the sea is damp and that'll weigh the wings down. But definitely don't fly too high because if you fly too high, you get really close to the sun and then the sun will melt the wax on the wings and then we'll die then too. So you gotta fly perfectly in the middle. Icarus says, yeah, I hear you dad, let's do it, let's leave. So they flap their wings and Daedalus and Icarus are now flying in the air and leaving Crete. And Minus is looking up going, those fucking pricks, how did he do that? I can't get him with my boats and I can't get him with my soldiers, they're escaping. So Daedalus and Icarus are escaping and it's going real well over the sea. But then Icarus, the young fella, he's like, Jesus Christ, this is unreal. Fuck me, I'm flying. I'm a human and I'm flying. Humans aren't supposed to fly. This is incredible. Wow. And then Icarus starts flying too high. He loses the run of himself. He doesn't show humility. He doesn't show humility. And he starts getting cocky. And the higher he goes, the closer he gets to the sun. And then the sun melts the wax on the wings and Icarus drowns. He drowns just off the coast of Italy and that's known as the Icarian Sea now. And poor old Daedalus makes it as far as Sicily, I believe. And again, he's just heartbroken because he's escaped, but at what cost? His poor little son is dead. And again, what you get is humility. It's all humility. Icarus failed to express humility. And when he didn't express humility... He didn't have emotional regulation. The emotion of pride and hubris took over and controlled his actions. And the gods got their revenge. The gods decided, hubris, there you go buddy, you're going to drown. So that's all I have time for this week. I hope you enjoyed that. I've been devouring Greek mythology, as you can tell. It's fucking fascinating. It's astounding. And... The mad thing for me is I feel like I'm discovering it. Like it's an obscure band 
that I want to show everybody. But this is the cornerstone of, of Western philosophy and Western thought and Western civilization. The history of the West has been various cultures deciding. Let's go back and see what the Greeks did. What were the Greeks saying about that? So I'm discovering fuck all. In the meantime, rub a dog and wink at a swan. I'll catch you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 